There are so many reasons why Paris is everybody's favorite city for a stroll. Coming up in the hour ahead, we'll explore a few paths. You can't walk over this bridge and not feel as if you're in another another world, a magical world of romance. Elaine Chalino introduces us to her favorite bridges in Paris. The city's also home to dozens of delightfully eccentric specialty museums. Emma Jacobs tells us they're often a labor of love that's more than worth the price of admission. And I can't wait to visit the Phono Gallery. Just this wild collection of giant old music boxes and gramophones and phonographs. And to enjoy French country living, may we recommend a side trip to Burgundy. Well, the word that always comes to mind for me in Burgundy is hearty. The earth is hearty, the people are hearty, the food is hearty. Thanks to the monastery, we've, we've got good wine in Burgundy. Let's go to France for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Their collections are often what you might consider eccentric, maybe even a little weird. In just a bit, we'll hear why nearly 200 small specialty museums scattered across Paris can add a personal touch you'll long remember. And we'll explore what you'll find in the countryside of Burgundy, an easy jaunt from Paris. Let's start today's very French edition of Travel with Rick Steves along the banks of the Seine, the busy river that winds through the heart of the city. Paris, to me, it's the capital of Europe, and you can never get tired of it. And I just love the way the Seine winds through the city, and the city faces its river. And I also love the way it's laced together by bridges that just give so much meaning to your wanderings through Paris. Elaine Chalino is a journalist for The New York Times. She's written books about Paris. Her new book is called The Seine, The River That Made Paris. And she talks about the bridges that lace together the right bank and the left bank in Paris. Elaine, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on your show. I love the way your book, The Seine, The River That Made Paris, illustrates the importance of the Seine to France and to Paris. And of course, Paris was born on the Seine, wasn't it? Yes, there would not have been a Paris had it not been for the Seine and for the Ile de la Cité, the island that is the center, the heart of the city of Paris. And that goes back to Roman times. Pre-Roman times, I suppose. Pre-Roman times, absolutely. Now, when we think about the Seine through the centuries, through most of the centuries, it's been a mucky riverbank where you've got all sorts of slime and sewer and garbage and poverty. and, And then over the centuries, you've built this wonderful embankment that sort of tames the river and, and makes it an elegant part of the city. Talk a bit about the embankment in Paris. Well, the embankment of Paris really, the way it looks like now, was conceived in the 19th century. And before that, you could pretty much walk along the banks of the Seine and bring your cows and horses and dogs right into the river, your laundry, whatever. Now it's a little bit more challenging, although there are places right now in Paris that you can walk right down into the river hmm. and you know go swimming if you're so inclined. But with this mighty embankment, you also have elegant bridges lacing it together, the the right and the left bank. And one of my favorite things in Paris is just to walk along the banks of the river and in, or cruise the river and enjoy the bridges. I've got so many vivid memories of just being on the top of one of those River Seine tourist boats and going under these glorious bridges. And the more you know about the context of these bridges, the more fun it is to sail under them. Let's just go and there's four bridges that really come to mind for me, and I'd love to just talk about each of them as if we're cruising down the river. And first we come to the Pont Neuf. It means the new bridge, right? 
It means the new bridge, even though it's uh, the oldest bridge in Paris. And when it was built, it was finished in the beginning of the 17th century. It was a miracle. It was an architectural, dazzling creation because it was the first bridge that didn't have houses on either side so that people would come to the Pont Neuf and look at the expanse of the river. It became the heart and soul of Paris where you would come and have all sorts of wild activities. You could join up for the army or buy exotic oranges or have a tooth pulled or watch jugglers or exchange gossip. You could buy false teeth and glass eyes and wooden legs and live poultry and skin whiteners. So it really was the place to be. It was for... a gathering place, a piazza for the city. It was. It, you know what? That's exactly right. It, it's like a piazza in the shape of a bridge. Now, when you said it had didn't have houses on either side, are you talking like lined with houses and shops like the Ponte Vecchio in Florence and the London Bridge in, in London? Precisément, exactly. Right. That you finally had an open view to the river and you didn't have these barriers in the shape of houses blocking your the visual joy of um that's the mark of a, of a city that has some pride because it's just a practical matter if you had a bridge that you needed to help pay for and maintain you'd rent out space to it and it would obliterate the fact that it feels like a bridge so london bridge and the ponte vecchio it would be lined by shops that were paying rent to the city so they could have that great bridge pont neuf it's a piazza that's great the next yes. bridge we come to is the pont des arts uh, right. The, uh, what what does that mean, and and how is it unique? Well, it's the bridge of the arts, and I love this bridge because it join. It's a walking bridge. It's a pedestrian bridge, and so it's a great bridge for picnicking. But if you stand in front of this bridge at the Louvre and look through a gorgeous courtyard that not very many people know about, it's called the Cour Carré, the Square Courtyard. You can look through the arch, and you can see right across the bridge to the Institut de France on the other side Hmm. of the river, which is where the Académie Française is. And you just feel like you've got this magical long view of uh, Paris. And this is a pedestrian bridge. And I love the way Paris prioritizes for pedestrians. And on many occasions, it's actually an open-air art gallery with some beautiful statuary to enjoy. And it's just part of a love of life on the streets in Paris. Yes, exactly. And, And it underscores how there is this everyday sharing, partage, between the bridge and the river. And it just inspires so much romance, and all these romantics uh, were coming there as they do all over Europe these days with their padlocks and locked their love on the on the bridge with these padlocks and threw the keys into the river. But that actually threatened the uh, the actual <laughs> safety of the bridge, didn't it? It did, and they were banned from the Pont des Arts, and so the Lovelock people then moved over to the Pont Neuf. Hmm. But what happened one day is that one of the panels fell into the river, and I Hmm. sort of think that maybe there were a lot of American tourists on the tourist boats below threatening to sue the city of Paris if one of them fell on the the boat. Ah. So they're technically banned now, although you can see them, the Lovelocks kind of cropping up at the edge of bridges, every place where there's like a little hook. They're just like weeds or rashes that you can't keep down. It is such an amazing... Mushrooms. Mushrooms, Mushrooms, that's what it is, because all over Europe, you know, officials try to save the bridge by (laughs) by not letting people do that, and they find little areas to lock their locks, and uh, I guess people have to show their love some way, and it helps the people who sell locks stay in business, Exactly. A lot of people are making money selling locks, yes. We're taking a closer look at the beautiful bridges of Paris with correspondent Elaine Shalino on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the author of The Seine, The River That Made Paris. 
And when we walk a little further along the river, we come to the Pont de la Concorde. And to me, there's so many ways that the city design, the boulevards and the grand buildings and the domes and the bridges, link things together. And it's fascinating to me to think that the Pont de la Concorde links the uh, Place de la Concorde with the National Assembly. What sort of uh, conclusions historically can we draw from the Pont de la Concorde, Elaine? Well, I like to argue that every bridge has its own story and structure and composition and character. And this bridge was built during the French Revolution and in part with stones from the demolished Bastille. And the bridge's engineer said that he was using them so that the people of Paris could forever trample on the old fortress, which I just think is marvelous. So wait a minute, 1789, <laughs> the people of France are really angry and a vent, they go over to the big heated prison and they literally tear it down. And then some of those stones from the Bastille end up building this bridge and it's named Pont de la Concorde. What does Concorde mean? Well, Concorde is named after the Place de la Concorde, which is the very chic a place where you have those extraordinary fountains, where you also have uh, just on the side you have the American Embassy in a very beautiful park. That's where so the it, big uh, obelisk is now, right? The Egyptian correct. Obelisk. That's exactly. It's where this fabulous obelisk was huh. was brought all the way from Egypt via the Seine, by the way. Ah. That's the very bottom of the Champs-Élysées. But what is, I think, really interesting, if I remember correctly, the Place de la Concorde, that vast, you're going to see it when you go to uh, Paris for sure, it used to be the Place de la Guillotine, and that's where the guillotine was set up that chopped off the heads of the king and queen of France and ended the old regime. And now you go from that place across the Pont de la Concorde built with bricks from the Bastille to the National Assembly, which would be like our Congress, and you celebrate liberty fraternity, and egalité. Egalité, precisely, yes. Whoa, so remember that when you go to the Pont de la Concorde. (laughs) And let's finish it with my favorite bridge in Paris because it's just a celebration of the Belle Epoque. Is that the word, Epoque? That's Um, that's exactly right. The Pont Alexander III. Uh, Describe that to us. Well, this is by far the most decorated and for many the most beautiful bridge in Paris because it is adorned with dolphins and sea monsters and nymphs and goddesses and snakes. And it's just a cacophony of beautiful, over-the-top gold gilt. You can't walk over this bridge and not feel as if you're in another another world, a magical world of romance. And how many movies have been filmed on this extraordinary bridge where you, you want to just kiss the one you're with? How many Brides or brides-to-be have traveled thousands of miles, literally, to be there and get their wedding portraits taken. Well, there's this whole fad now in China that if you have enough money and you're about ready to get married, you come over to Paris before you get married, put on your wedding garb, and you pose on one of these bridges in front of the Eiffel Tower. You know, Paris is called the City of Light. I'm always aware of that on the bridges. When we think about this Pont Alexander III, in the daytime, the sun is glinting off of the gold medallions, and in the evening, Paris just beautifully floodlights its monuments, and that includes the bridges. And the French are so into lighting, and in your article about this, you wrote that there's two schools of lighting, the Paris School and the Lyon School. Uh, What's the difference between those two schools? (laughs) Well, the Paris School of Lighting is sort of bathing the entire monument or bridge in a flat 
even light. Where the Lyon school is when you've got a bridge or a monument with a lot of detail, you want to focus tiny little pointillistic lighting all around it. And there, there actually is a whole department in Paris City Hall that is dedicated to lighting the bridges and monuments of Paris. And Paris spends millions of dollars every year to light its city. Elaine, you've put such heart and soul into your new book, The Seine, The River That Made Paris. And we've talked about two or three miles out of this 500-mile-long river. And it's just one beautiful dimension of a beautiful city in a beautiful country. Thanks for sharing this from your perspective as a person who's long loved and appreciated the City of Light. Well, thank you, Rick, and I want to know when you and I are going to explore the Seine together. Let's do it. I'll let you know next time <laughs> I'm in Paris. Thanks, Elaine. Great. You'll find a link to Elaine Cholino's website with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. 877-333-RICK is our number as we linger in Paris to explore a few of its small curiosity museums next. And then we're off to the countryside of Burgundy on Travel with Rick Steves. Paris is so famous for its must-see museums, massive important obligations like the Louvre and the Orsay. But with about 200 much smaller museums scattered all around the city, you're missing out on some beautiful attractions if you limit yourself to the big, famous sites. Emma Jacobs has enjoyed the city's lesser-known gems, and she specializes in how each of them offers something different. They cover a range of quirky and historical topics, topics like the art of the fairgrounds, or um, carousel horses, or counterfeiting, or the history of medicine. And Emma Jacobs has written a book called The Littler Museums of Paris to take us into these specialty museums. Emma, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm always happy to talk museums. Yeah, well, me too, and especially in Paris, because you can. Paris is the cultural capital of Europe. You can go there all your life, and many people just, they seem to go back and back and back to the Louvre and the Orsay and stand in those long lines, and those are great museums, of course, but they neglect the other 200 museums, and this is a great thing that, that your book has focused on. And I really enjoyed the introduction that explained why Paris has so many museums. Uh, You talked about France is more centralized uh, than a lot of countries, at least historically. So a lot of stuff ended up in the the capital city. It did, yes. And a a lot was scooped up from the provinces, like the very famous unicorn tapestries that are in the medieval Musée Cluny. They, you know, were hanging in a chateau and, and then someone wanted them for a national collection and they came to Paris. And then with the revolution, of course, a lot of these royal collections and treasures that were owned by people who probably had their heads chopped off ended up public. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Louvre was the palace. You cut off the head of the king and queen and you uh, you inherit the greatest collection of art in Europe and you don't have a king to fill the palace anymore. What do you do? You, you hang the art in the palace and you open up to the public and voila, you got the Louvre. Uh, yes. And, and, you know, Napoleon also created what was called the Musée Napoleon in the Louvre and um, brought art that he captured from all over Europe. And then you just, Paris is a rich city, so there's, there's just so many collectors and socialites. And it, it seemed there was a, a culture of competition almost to show off what you got in your, in your fancy home. 
Yeah, it was like if you feel sometimes like if you couldn't make art, what you did was arranged a beautiful house as your legacy full of art and antiques. Uh, yeah, my, one of my favorites is the Musée Jacques-Mart André. Yes, that's a beautiful one. And she, Nellie Jacques-Mart André, her husband was involved too, but she outlived him by a very long time. And it's really her vision behind the museum. She is a really fascinating character. But they just had a lot of money and no kids, and they decided to dedicate it all to collecting all these fancy things. And then they, and now it's part of the, the heritage of France, and, and we get to all enjoy it. Yeah. And left very specific instructions, you know, yeah. leave it as I arranged it. This is my, my masterwork. So in your book, The Littler Museums of Paris, you, you focus on the small, quirky museums that come with a little extra experience in a lot of cases. Tell us just one favorite little museum that has a, a particularly fun twist. The Museum of Hunting and Nature, um, Chasse et Nature, it doesn't necessarily you know, sounds super appealing off the bat. It does have kind of the taxidermy and the old antique rifles you'd expect, but it has just been recreated as this very whimsical space where there's modern art integrated with the rest of the collection. And it's it's just, it's an absolutely unique space. There's just nothing else like it, but it's also very Parisian. What does very Parisian mean? It's just got this this atmosphere and sort of attention to the presentation and... Does it have a nice cafe? (laughs) It does not have a cafe. Because a lot of museums have these charming little cafes, and I always think in Paris that's just such a nice nice touch. It it is, yes, absolutely. Now, we're talking 200 museums, and a lot of people go, oh, no, another 20 bucks or another 10 bucks, but you can get that Paris Museum Pass, and if you are just a a real avid museum-goer, you can get a, what, a five-day-long, complete, unlimited entry to all the sites, and and if you if you sightsee in a busy way, the cool thing is you just pop into whatever. Victor Hugo's house, pop in. Edith Piaf's museum, pop in. You know, the Museum of Music, just pop in. And uh, you just flash your pass and, and you're there. Yeah, there's a mix of different organizations running these museums. The 14 city-owned museums mm-hmm. are all free unless there's a, a temporary exhibition going on. Um, in general, these little museums tend to be a lot cheaper than American museums, but also than the larger museums. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Emma Jacobs, and she's taking us on an alternative route through Paris right now, and her book is The Littler Museums of Paris. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Caroline's calling from San Diego about some thoughts on museums in Paris. Caroline, thanks for your call. I just really adore the small museums of Paris, and always plan to work in a couple, too, if I'm lucky enough to get back to Paris. So what are your favorites? You know, one that I saw in her book is called the Museum of the 30s. Uh, It's stuff from the 1930s, art, appliances, and you never really, you know, see it called out separately like this in other places. It's a really fabulous, beautiful collection that the Mm. city of Paris has put in a separate museum. I I don't honestly remember the history. I think that might be in Emma's book. Maybe she Mm -hmm. can elaborate on that. I I love the way Emma said some of these museums are so Parisian. And when you go to a little museum like that, I I imagine you feel like an insider. There's not going to be the mobs of tour groups and so on that that fill the Orsay Gallery or the Louvre. And it's just you and a little intimate slice of uh, Parisian culture. Absolutely. So many of these museums are under visited and it's just beautiful you don't often have to wait in lines you don't have to get your tickets in advance uh it and they're also just beautiful 
elegant collections. When you say what makes it Parisian, it's like they're they're put together with a sense of style. And even the older museums, which have these historic collections, like she was mentioning, the, this Museum of, of Nature and the Chase, um, they've added. They always add something new, something modern. I was I was in the Money Museum uh, last year, uh, Museum de Condé, I think it's called, and they had this incredible modern art installation with tapestries and sculpture. And who would have known? In addition, you can learn about the history of minting <laughs> and building, and how they do metal medallions still to this day. They do honorary medallions, and they have artists there that you have little windows into their workshops for the modern things that they're doing. So there's a real combination of the history and the new, I find, in Paris. And, you know, I think that's probably because the museums are dedicated not to tourists from the United States or China, but to local people that just uh, want to go out and they, they, they change it up so there's something new and fresh. Emma, have you have you found that in the museums, especially the smaller museums, that they, they have uh, changing exhibits to kind of to keep people coming back? Yeah, I think they, they do want to get people in the doors when you have so much competition from so many museums and such a rich cultural landscape. You do need to offer something new and get people to come to this museum that's always been there and maybe they've thought about going, but but this is why I go now. There's a whole different dimension of culture, and it's that lively, modern, ever-changing design for the locals. And it, it gives you um, sort of an inside track to, to being a, a temporary Parisian while you're visiting. Paris yeah, through the absolutely. back door, eh, Rick? That's through the back door. You got it, <laughs> Caroline. Hey, Caroline, what's another favorite museum of yours, a small museum in Paris? Oh, you know, this is a very offbeat one. I don't even think I saw it in the book. It's called the Albert Kahn Museum, and it's a combination museum and gardens. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mr. Kahn was a banker, I believe. But he commissioned someone, one of the first uh, color cameras, I think it was either Land or Eastman, a very uh, young man with a camera to go out. I think it was like around the 1890s, perhaps. And they had a process for doing color photography, which is brand new, and it didn't win the technology. But he has this fabulous collection of photographs of color from an era that you not only do seldom see photographs, much less color photographs. So if you're interested in that history, it's displayed there, but it also comes along with his garden, yeah. because it was also his mansion, his haute particulaire, if you will. And while they have a modern museum aspect to it, they have the traditional gardens where he imported or rebuilt uh, little installations from uh, exhibition that he'd been to in Asia. So there's a real mix of things, but it's also maintained with in a beautiful French garden style with these little interesting additions uh, of history there. And uh, I like Carolyn that you mentioned it was in the in the mansion of a of a wealthy, you know, connoisseur of something. And uh, you see the the word hotel or, or I don't know the French pronunciation. But Emma, you've described in your book what that actually means because for a tourist they think a hotel is a place where people sleep, but it really is a, a local mansion, right? Can you explain when we see that word what we're really talking about? Yeah, so a hotel particulier is a sort of urban version of the chateau in the country. That's mm. sort of how it translates to Paris, and it evolves over the years. Um, you got to imagine when Paris was a, a lot smaller that you could build something bigger, um, and as land gets more and more expensive, you know, you may not have as big a, a garden courtyard, and tastes evolve, but you tend to do have the sort of entryway in the front and then the, the body of the house and the garden behind. It's an added dimension of any of so many small museums is it's in a beautiful house, uh, one of these chateaus uh, in the big city. 
And uh, it's just another reason to check out these small hotel, uh, small museums. Caroline, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Emma Jacobs, and her book is The Littler Museums of Paris, an illustrated guide to the city's hidden gems. And Wes is on the line from Covington in Kentucky. Wes, thanks for your call. Rick, thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Um, my wife and I are planning a, a trip to Paris. Um, we are off-season travelers, and we're taking our six-year-old with us. And this will be our first time in Paris, and it will be his first trip to, to Europe that he's aware of. He, we previously took him to Italy, but he was about 16 months old, so he doesn't remember that. Mm. We have plans to go to, the, and I'm going to, to butcher the pronunciation, so I apologize, the Jardin d'Acclimation or something uh, Oh, de climatation. Uh, yeah. So, Wes, you're going with a six-year-old. Correct. Emma, what are a couple of museums that come to mind uh, for you if you were taking a six-year-old around for the museums of Paris? Uh, so, yes, there are a lot. And I think what's nice about them is, is a lot of them offer something for kids and adults. There is the paleontology gallery, which is laid out, you know, much as it would have been 100 years ago, so it's, it's really fun to walk around in, in kind of a quirky layout. But so paleontology, it's just what, what are skeletons. You skeletons, prehistoric animals, or, or what? Or what do you call that? Yeah, it's it, well, it's filled with fossils, but also skeletons of all different types of species with their you know original labels that were written a hundred years ago. It's I think it's really fun for adults as well as for kids. Also. There's museums that come with a little extra twist, like the Museum of Magic. In your book, you mentioned it starts out with a magic performance. And, of course, there's no language barrier when you're taking kids to see magic tricks. Yeah, for sure. And the other one that kids can do activities and go on rides, actually, is the Museum of Fairground Arts, which has a couple of carousels and some very old fairground games I that you can that. play. And those antique carousels are just a delight. They really are, Yeah. So, Wes, that might be something to keep in mind. The Museum of Fairground Arts. Is this a museum where you've got to have a reservation to go to it? Yes. It's a tour. They don't let you Mm -hmm. loose. Sometimes if there's, uh, in small museums, they're likely to have everything in French, but they have a little folder at the door when you pay for your ticket that gives you an English translation of all the exhibits, and that is really worth asking for. And I think they do English language tours during the summer, possibly not in the off-season, but during the summer. Hey, Wes, have a good time with your six-year-old. That's great that you're going together. All right. Thanks very much. Emma Jacobs is showing us an intimate side of Paris that most visitors will never get a chance to see right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Scattered across the city are about 200 smaller museums and curiosity galleries, often run by artists and eccentric collectors. Emma includes images from her reporter's sketchbook in her book, The Littler Museums of Paris. Joshua's listening in from Evanston, Illinois, and writes that he was in Paris just a few months before the pandemic shut things down. Joshua, what kind of smaller, out-of-the-way sites did you get to see? Uh, Well, actually, on a Sunday afternoon, I decided to take a... I actually took a little trip outside of Paris, about 14 miles or so, to uh, visit the Villa Savoy the uh, uh, kind of masterpiece of Le Corbusier so in uh, Poisset. And uh, it's a pretty fantastic little museum. And there's also an architectural walk there in the town as well. You kind of walk through an abbey to get to the house itself. So it's a really fantastic way to spend the afternoon. And it was the first Sunday of the month, 
So uh, it was free as well. So I guess on the first Sundays of the month, the museums there are free. So Was it particularly I, crowded because of that, or was it a museum that doesn't have a crowd concern? Uh, it didn't really, it wasn't that crowded, no. There were a few people there, I think mostly, you know, architecture buffs. But no, there there was no line or anything to get in. Uh, so it was, it was actually quite comfortable walking around. Uh, I think there were audio guides as well, but I, I just had a... They handed you a little pamphlet with some background information on the house, and uh, and it's just kind of a self-guided tour of the house and the grounds. That's great. Hey, Emma, if you're interested in modern architecture, um, you know, people have Le Corbusier in mind when they go to France, but what are some ways that you enjoy checking out modern architecture in Paris? So the Museum of the 1930s, which was mentioned earlier, that is in a suburb called Bilancourt, mm-hmm. and... That was sort of a place for a lot of experimentation of architects during his period. They were sort of free to make these houses in these new neighborhoods the way they wanted to make them. Mm-hmm. And there's some models, architectural models there, and, and some ways to learn about that period. Le Corbusier's own home, which was actually an apartment in a building he built, is also a museum. Hmm. Well, that's good to know. Joshua, thanks for your call. No problem. Thank you. Take care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Emma Jacobs, and her book is The Littler Museums of Paris, talking about the 200 museums that people overlook when they go to the Louvre and the Orsay and nothing else. Emma, when you think about the museums, the small museums of Paris, I love the the ones that have a little bit of hands-on or a little bit of uh, experience along with seeing the exhibits. Let's talk just for a sec about those. The Museum of Music, for instance, it comes with concerts on the original historic instruments, doesn't it? Yeah, a combination of the original instruments and sometimes replicas, because uh-huh. um, sometimes the replicas can sound better than those very old yeah, instruments. Sure. But there's a performance almost every day in one of the galleries, some some type of instrument. And I love a museum that lets you capture, it's like a, a sneak snapshot of a great creative person's world. And uh, I'm thinking of the uh, muse- museum at Montmartre. Uh, you know, the hill with the um, Sacre Coeur Church and all the uh, artists in the streets and so on. You know, there's there's a lot of artists that worked on Montmartre and they had their houses built to let a lot of light in and so on. You can picture this classic Parisian artist there, you know, enjoying the light and he's got his palette and his easel and it's just, I feel like I'm I'm a voyeur into, into history and culture. Yeah, absolutely. Emma, let's just finish with, as you did your research for your book, which museum did you write up that you thought, this is going to make people so happy that they have my book and they wouldn't know about it otherwise? Um, I think the Phono Museum is fantastic, and that may be because I'm an audio person, but it is a little private collection that was turned into a museum near Pigalle, and it's a museum of the history of sound recording and has just this wild collection of of these giant old music boxes and gramophones and phonographs mm. in, in all sorts of colors and shapes, and they will play them for you, mm. which, you know, would not really be best practice in a more formal museum setting. I but love that. But you can watch that. them play, you know, yeah. wax cylinders and, and things you just would never get to see anywhere else. Emma Jacobs, thanks so much for the work you've done putting this book together and sharing with us uh, the Littler Museums of Paris. Thank you. It's been great to talk with you. An unnamed salon orchestra on a 1920 Edison phonograph recording from the collection at the Phono Gallery in Paris. 
Emma Jacobs has more about the littler museums of Paris in her book with that same title and on her website, emmaatlarge.com. 877-333-7425 is our phone number as we head a little southeast from the city for the sensory delights of Burgundy. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Wait. Je voyage. Right? Would I say je voyage souvent, de temps en temps, je voyage avec Rick Steves. Wow. You're, you've picked up that French very well. De temps en temps, pas toujours, mais de temps en temps, je voyage avec mon ami Rick Steves. The region in France called Burgundy is famous for its wines, it delights its visitors with Romanesque abbeys, its medieval villages, pastoral countryside. In many ways, it provides travelers with the quintessential French experience. We're joined now by two friends and fellow tour guides from Burgundy, Patrick Vidal and Julie Sanbo. Bonjour. Bonjour. How are you both doing? Très bien, très bien. Nice to have you here. Now, when we think about uh, Burgundy, I mentioned it's the quintessential image of France. That's the quintessential for maybe for clichés from a tourist point of view. Within France, how do people see Burgundy? Julie? Well, the word that always comes to mind for me in Burgundy is hardy. Hardy. Everything is hardy. The earth is hardy. The people are hardy. The food is hardy. Burgundy. Okay. Yeah. yeah the, I always have to do that with my body to yeah, make that. <laughs> I, when I think of the cuisine, I think yeah. hardy cuisine. Yeah. Patrick? But for the rest of the French, Burgundy is a, it's a place to go through. You know, it's, uh, it's halfway between Paris and the Alps or uh-huh. the south of France. And in fact, uh, Burgundy is the, uh, the French champion of one night stop. Is that right? Yeah, all of all of northern Europe travel down to Italy, travel down to Spain, travel down to the French the Côte, d'Azur. Uh, Côte d'Azur or the Alps, and stops in Burgundy, in Beaune or in Dijon because it's halfway. All right, and uh, and uh, there's a lot of speciality of that of uh, mm-hmm. of the hotels are, are doing one night stop, and people are just coming through and motorways taking people. Down. Let's say that is your actual destination. There is a pretty good connection now from Paris to Burgundy. Oh, it's, with, very, with it's very quick, yeah, it's very quick. The TGV is, uh, is an hour and something, yeah, yeah. yeah. sure. Yeah, sure. it's very, very efficient. Yeah. Now, now, historically, Burgundy is, is actually was a, a power in the Middle Ages. What's the story about that? Well, for 400 years, from the mid-1300s to the mid-1400s, uh, the Duke of Burgundy, the first Duke of Burgundy, was the, one of the sons of the King of France, and it, they became stronger during, pretty much during the time of the Hundred Year War. And we always think of the Hundred Year War as the uh, Franco-English War, but it was much more complicated than that, and the Burgundians were in the middle of that. And at some point, Burgundy was stronger than France. It I mean, was ruling lands all the way to, absolutely, to, to the Netherlands. To Flanders. To Flanders, Flanders yeah. all the way yeah. down to... Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always like to think that uh, if things have turned slightly differently, France would be called Burgundy and will be traveling to Paris thinking of uh, calling the region France. Isn't that and, interesting? Uh, it's yeah. like uh, Germany was united under Prussian rule, kind of, and it yes. shaped what yeah, Germany was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. France could have been united under and, uh, Burgundian Burgundy, rule. Yeah, yeah it, could have, it could have happened. Mm-hmm. Now, a thousand years ago, Burgundy was very important uh, in the monastic movement. When, when Europe fell into the Dark Ages and there was all sorts of chaos and there was no order that Rome provided, sort of the, the way to replace that was this uh, European-wide movement of monasteries, and it started in Cluny, right? Cluny in 910, yes, they developed it, and it became the biggest church in Christendom. So there was hundreds, was hundreds they had thousands of, of, of abbeys, sub- and the head abbey, abbey was there in Cluny. And to this day, there's still a, a strong monastic feeling. I was. Have you been to Teze? What is Teze? Well, that's a different um, community. Uh-huh. It's um, kind uh, of a modern, diverse. Yeah, it's a place where a lot of youth come and meditate, and it's non-denominational. They have what well, was started by a, a Protestant minister, I believe, and there's Catholic priests there. They when they say the services, they say them in about seven different languages. 
It's got the the elegance and the um, mysticism a little bit and the and the meditative, uh, meditative dimension yes. of, of Catholicism. But at the same time, it's celebrating ecumenism and all the different Christian denominations are there. Right. And a lot of silence, meditation, yeah. prayer. And there's one part of the monastery we always forget about is that uh, thanks to the monastery, we've, we've got good wine in Burgundy. Our guides are Julie Sanvo. She's an American who left Kansas for a new life in Burgundy many years ago and Patrick Vidal, who piloted tourist barges in Burgundy before moving his family to Brittany in the northwest of France. He continues guiding American visitors to the regional specialties of his native country. We're exploring the region of Burgundy, in the middle of east-central France, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's talk about cuisine, because in Burgundy, you've got some quintessential French dishes, and they are, like Julie said, they're hearty. First of all, you got the wine. Why is the wine of Burgundy Everything so famous? I mean, the first development of that is that you've got monasteries around, so those guys have got, they're given land, they've got time to take care of the wine, they've got time to do experiments, so they've developed the wine. Look at Belgium, look at a lot of places around in Germany. I mean, the best beers you find about are from abbeys. What was the, so, um, the, the, the phrase in, um, in a monastery, work and prayer? Yeah, well, that was sort of the thing. You'd, Absolutely, you'd work the field and you'd pray a lot, and they had the time, as you said. Yeah, I and mean, uh, local farmer had to sell their wine to make money out of it or use the wine for their own consumption. The monks had time to take care of it. In France, there's a, something a lot of Americans misunderstand. Explain the, the focus on the actual grape as opposed to the actual village or valley. The way no, the way it works is, is different. I mean, in, in the states, you refer to wines by what grape comes uh-huh. into the making of the wine. In uh, southern Europe, you refer to wine by where it's coming from. So it goes from regional to name of the village to name of the field. So Burgundy could be different kinds of grape. Burgundy's only one grape. What is that? Pinot Noir. It's Pinot Noir, okay. Mostly, technically. Um, There is, um, Beaujolais uses a Gamay grape and that's administratively part of Burgundy, but they treat it as its own region. And you, you so, mentioned but, hardy is the word for Burgundy. Would you characterize the wine as hardy? Or does well, that... they, they say that it's a hardy wine. Um, I think Americans think of more of a, a full-bodied wine as being a Bordeaux with the Merlots and the Cabernets. I see. Now, in some countries, the economic arrangements are such that you have huge corporate wineries that own up most of the production. Does France have a policy that encourages big wineries or protects small family wineries? Or is that an issue? I think it's a practical thing. I mean, if you look at the different wine regions in France, wherever you make good money, you've got little makers. You're going to have little properties because they can survive on small estate. Wherever you've got little amount of money coming through the sale of your wine, you'll have big co-ops and big properties. So you're saying the finer wine is more likely to be made by... Smaller yeah, wineries. That's, that's how it works. Champagne is a, is a big thing on that. You don't have any big house. You've got big houses of champagne, but you've got a lot, a lot of little makers. And, and, and the, Burgundy is a, bit, is a bit like that as well. And Burgundy is like that too. Mm-hmm. They have small clos, small and, and villages and winemakers, but that also makes it more higher end because it's harder to get. There's not as much production Less of it. production. And sometimes they'll hold down the production just to keep the value up. In the, right. And, and then... And, in Burgundy, in, in uh, Bone, you have the Hospice of Bone that does their wine auction every year. And they've been doing that for 500 years. And um, that brings in a lot of money to the area, to the hospice. Um, it's always been based on um, being funded by the vineyards. So if you're a traveler and you're coming to Burgundy and you love wine and you want to learn about French wine, uh, you can go to Bone and there's the Marché au Vin and there's different uh, wineries there that welcome guests. Yeah. And you can Do go into the countryside. Tasting. What's your favorite experience in the countryside, Patrick, for tasting wine? 
Well, you've got, you've got a lot of, of uh, I mean, the, the idea is to look for a little winemaker, a little place where it's got the, the sign saying degustation, which is, uh, uh-huh. which is my wine testing. And then you just knock at the door and try to uh, try to see if you can so make, welcome you make you. your way. Oh, yeah. Must so if you're driving them, yeah. around the countryside in your rental car, the keyword degustation. Degustation. And, uh, or biking. Yeah. Or, or biking. bicycle. Yeah, you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's it might, could be an interesting thing going on a biking wine tasting <laughs> yeah. tour. Oh, it's but better than it driving. Be, yeah, it's better than, <laughs> it's better than driving. Better than driving. Yeah. You're right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patrick Vidal and Julie Sanvo, and we're talking about Burgundy. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Daniel's calling from Washington, D.C. Daniel, thanks for the call. Thanks a lot, Rick. I'm traveling to France in August uh, for 11 nights, and my question is this. So far, we're planning on flying into Nice and out of Paris, and we think we want to go to the Riviera, uh, French Riviera, Provence, Paris, and Normandy. And my question is, is there a way to customize our itinerary so we can go to a town such as Burgundy or like Burgundy with that same charm, kind of to break up our trip? And if so, where should we go, and would we take a train or car? There's so much good stuff in the Riviera and in Provence. That's Avignon and Arles and Nîmes and so on, Rhone Valley. Okay, so between Avignon and Paris, uh, Patrick and Julie, what, what would be a fun way for Daniel to get that flavor of the countryside? I think the, uh, the the best stop would be to stop in Bonn anyway. I yeah, mean, in Burgundy. Uh, because you, it's easily reachable by train. Uh, it works pretty well. After that, you're a bit stuck. I mean, if you're by train, you're a bit stuck in the town. But there's a lot of... Uh, you can rent a bike and, and go and see the uh, the vineyard. You can... Uh, they organize some some local tours as well. And there's many mini bus tours. Mini bus right, tours. they do One, great yeah. wine yeah. tours. Mm-hmm. Daniel, are, are you riding? Are you renting a car, Daniel? Did you mention? Well, my thought was we would fly into Nice, not get a car then, but mm-hmm. rent a car for Provence, mm-hmm. and then uh, a thought was we would rent a car and drive from Provence to Paris, stopping somewhere mm-hmm. in between to break up the trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if if uh, just speaking with you, we want to stop in Burgundy, but I'm not sure if that's possible with our itinerary. And just to get a sense of is it, and then also uh, if not, what what towns. Could we do? You know, everything is possible if you have a rental car with the French uh, auto route. Well, you're going to drive through Burgundy anyway. Yeah. So, well, uh, drive through Burgundy, stop in Bone overnight, but on the way to Paris, stop at Guédelon, the project where they're building the 13th century castle. This is definitely very unique. Now, that's it's interesting. It's a beautiful part of it. And Burgundy. you've actually worked there, haven't you? Can you explain about this building a medieval castle project uh, just between Burgundy and Paris? Well, it was kind of a crazy idea of a man named Michel Guillot who owned a castle already and always wondered, like all of us do, how do how did they build castles in the 13th century? And they thought the best way to do it was to experiment, to try it. And so they got together this crazy idea of trying to build a castle. So they've been doing it for the last 15 years, and it's coming along quite nicely. So this is a private in- initiative? It was a private. Just a uh, bunch of gentle Well, they started out actually a, a nonprofit organization, uh-huh. but now it's privately owned. But it, it's a tourist attraction where you're watching people build a 13th century castle by hand. So as we're if talking it was like human-powered no, hamster wheels and right, all that kind right, of stuff. Right, no roads. power tools. No right. power tools. Right, just one stone at a time. When will it be finished, the castle? Well, I don't do think they, it'll ever... Do they ever, expect to finish it? Or? Yeah, about 2025, they think. But um, they've, they've also built a mill. Um, so you can go see that. So it's really just a working industrial, a medieval industrial uh, complex. There you go. Wow. It's really, really difficult to describe it, but everybody that sees it is just fascinated by it. So, Daniel, this is called the Chateau de Guédelon. I think it's spelled G-U-E-D-E-L-O-N. Exactly. That's worth putting on your list. Have a good time, Daniel. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for calling. Bye now. And William's calling in from Little Falls in New Jersey. William, thanks for your call. You bet. 
I'll be uh, floating down the canal from Gray to Branch and um, was looking for some places uh, uh, right off the river um, or nearby via taxi to go see. Well, we just happen to have a barge captain in our studio right now. Wow. Uh, um, Patrick, what would be some advice for uh, William on a barge? Well, I must admit that the gray area, it's a gray area. <laughs> uh, it's, it's an area when I've never worked up there. I mean, okay. I've worked more south between Dijon and Bonn and all, okay. the, all, the, uh, all the area more south. But uh, it's a lovely place. There's a lot of things to see around there. And in general, you have the flexibility on a canal ride in France to, you're on these industrial age canals, you can are you, get are out you, and William, walk. are you renting a, a little barge or are you on, uh, on an organized trip? On the, uh, We're uh, navigating ourselves on a small boat so you have you have all the all the flexibility to stop wherever you want to uh, to moor up whenever you want that's very very easy and uh, very relaxing do you have to be a talented navigator down the river at about six miles an hour (laughs) oh six miles is a bit optimistic uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) don't plan on that kind of speed okay that'll be a bit fast for you What would you plan on if you're looking at a map for your how much how many miles a day? How many miles? That's all depends on what you want to do. I mean, yeah. you can you can cruise all day long if you want, and you can yeah. kind of cover ground. But the, all the point is to stop everywhere. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> don't even think of the taxi. Just look at the next village. Stop, move up the boat, and and walk to this village and through fields. And uh, I mean, the the countryside up there is just mind blowing. Right, discover, nice. discover, discover. Yeah, right. pa- Patrick, describe for our our listeners. I mean, because I can imagine hiring onto a tour on a a big barge where you have a a chef and you have organized uh, activities. But if you're a a family of four and you just rent the actual private canal boat, what's that like? Well, think of it as a, a floating RV. An you RV, know, it's yeah. an RV. It's a floating RV. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a simple kitchen corner. It's a little lounge. It's a two bedrooms, three bedrooms, depending how, but very small, very small uh, accommodations. And then you pilot yourself, and, and, and you uh, don't need to worry about storms. No, you don't need to worry about <laughs> storms. No, I mean what they do is that officially you're not allowed to drive them, but the uh, the the guy who's renting the boat to you gives you a little training, which is officially supposed to be three hours which end up being more three minutes or four minutes than three hours. According to the fact that he gives you this training, you are allowed to drive this boat all all around the place. Small engines, uh, nothing to worry about. It's very easy to do. (laughs) And all you have to think is uh, aim to the next lock and get into the lock. And And then what's it like coming to a lock? It's it's very easy. Canal float. Yeah, it's 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 very relaxed. It's very easy. Entering the lock is just like you've got to take your time, and uh, your boat is not very fast anyway. <laughs> and you're gonna bump from one side to the other one. So that's. And that's if there's fun. a lock keeper, don't arrive at noon because he'll be eating lunch and uh, he'll be off until two tw- o'clock. Twelve and one. But this would be the problem, <laughs> William, with the American sort of aggressive uh, itinerary planning. You'd come to the lock. It's lunchtime, and the canal lock keeper is having his lunch, and he's not going to break from that. No. So the typical American might be all, "Come on, I've got an appointment." But the French people would go, hey, it's lunchtime. Let's, yeah. let's right. join them. I'm prepared to take a chill pill. I think, I think if William has, has already planned to book on these boats there, he, he knows where he's going. I think I wouldn't worry about that too much. Yep. Yeah. William, that sounds like so much fun. Have you done any canal barging before? Um, we uh, went on the uh, Canal du Midi. And how was your experience well, there, William? Um, the experience was wonderful, which is why we're doing it again uh, with people who actually took the trip um, uh, separately. So we have two uh, two couples um, on a small boat. Um, while I have the opportunity, let me ask you, though, um, we're all wine hounds, and um, it's my general opinion, please correct me if I'm wrong, that wine in... The Cote d'Or, the Cote de Bone, Cote de Mar, is 
just very, very expensive, and that real values are available in the Cote Chalonnaise. Um, do you have a, an opinion on that? Well, I kind of agree with that. I mean, it's the, the, the one which are not from the big names in the, in the Cote d'Or are, are always less expensive. But if you look around anywhere you are, you'll find some wines, even from the Cote d'Or, which are, which are reasonable and, uh, and good values as well. Especially yeah. if you're buying in a wine shop instead of in a restaurant and you, yeah. you drink it on your Oh, yeah, yeah. If boat. you buy it in a wine shop or even a, yeah. a, a little grocery store or something like that, right. you'll find I would go high-end yeah. in a grocery store yeah, and, and yeah. drink it on the boat. Yeah. Hey, William, thanks for your call. Have, have a bet. great trip. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. Right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Burgundy with Patrick Vidal and Julie Sanvo. I want to just cover the cuisine. Uh, Julie, when you think about Burgundian cuisine, a lot of times anywhere in France you see de Bourgogne on the, on the menu. Is, is that a way to prepare it, or what does that mean to you? Well, if you're preparing food in Burgundy, you're using wine. So you're going to have your bouffe bourguignon, which is um, your beef that's been uh, marinated for a long time, slow-cooked in Burgundy wine. Same with Cocovin is the rooster that's been marinated in the wine. Um, and so almost everything includes the wine in it. So you're talking Bourgogne. about uh, yeah, this hearty sort of rustic cuisine. Mm. When you're in Burgundy, what would you go for to have the sort of the quintessential meal in the quintessential corner of France? Oh, well, I would start off with oeuf en, mur- uh, en murette. I have a hard time saying that, which is the sauce that you've used for your bouffe bourguignon uh-huh. and um, reduced down with some bacon and onions and poured over a poached egg with a piece of toast. Nice. And start off with that. And, and then you, if you want more, you can go on with your coco vin or your bouffe bourguignon and uh, some chocolat for dessert. Ah, nice. And, Patrick, I love escargot. What is escargot de bourgogne? Is there escargot bur- burgundy style? <laughs> yes, yes, that's the uh, escargot made burgundy style because, in fact, they're not coming from Burgundy originally. They're coming from Eastern Europe. It's uh, cooked in their in their shell, or cooked outside of the shell, but put back in their shell with the garlic and uh, and parsley butter, which is the most important part of it. I mean, forget about the snail. Put your bread into the bread sauce. In the, so, the bread yeah. in the so sauce. when you when you have your plate of little tiny um, spots for yes, each shell, yes, six or twelve, yeah, has has that. Snail been taken out and cooked yeah, and put back absolutely. in. Absolutely, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, very often they use the same the same, uh, the same shells, shells over, over and over. over, over yes, and over. They, they wash it. They wash them and uh, oh, and and, them again. and they put them in there and it's packed around this garlic and butter mix and then yes. the, but it all melts out. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and that's something you can just if you have your boat on the canal, you can just go into a shop and get these shells and these snails. Or? They, you can find well, them already yeah, you prepared can find now. Them, yeah, prepared. Yeah. Already prepared. Yeah. All you do put is them put them in the oven, heat them up. TV dinner. Yeah, that's it. Burgundian style. Burgundian style. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are in, you're just enticing me to enjoy the culture of Burgundy, and I think I'll do it on a canal boat for a part of that vacation. That's so so nice. Patrick, Julie, merci bien. Merci. Merci, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Casmer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Andrew Wakeling uploads the show to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out when other stations around the country are travel with Rick Steves. There's a list at ricksteves.com radio. Monday Night Travel. It's a weekly travel party and you're invited. Zoom in and have some fun learning about Europe's art, history, culture, and food over drinks and snacks. It's free. It's an adventure, and be careful, it can be addictive. Join me and my travel buddies over Zoom for Monday Night Travel. We're live every week, starting at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. Eastern. 
Register at ricksteves.com and BYOB.